I think it's the proper motion. The law has changed that if sexual abuse was not allowed, and there's ample evidence to prove it, or at least enough that a court would probably allow it in at a trial, I think the habeas will be very, very successful. Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, SDS Nation? Welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime, and today is no exception. Uh, you heard last night we had uh, Dr. Ann Burgess on of Netflix Mindhunter fame, one of the original uh, members of the Behavioral An- uh, Analyst Unit at the FBI. Uh, she also uh, testified in the first case um, on behalf of Eric Menendez and on the, on the show last night, said that she believes both Menendez brothers should be freed, as does domestic violence attorney Wendy Murphy. So we're going to weigh in and hear from uh, two more famed criminal defense attorneys and get their take uh, and some of the legal wranglings that are going on as well. I tried to get uh, Mark Garagos, who uh, is representing both brothers. He reached out, apologized. He could not make it today. He will come on the show uh, in the very near future to discuss this. But um, for those who do not know, Lyle and Eric Menendez were convicted of the grisly 1989 shotgun murders of their parents, Jose and Mary Louise Kitty Menendez. That, of course, happened at the family's sprawling Beverly Hills mansion. They've been behind bars ever since. I think they've actually been behind bars since around 1989, 1990. Uh, So it's been quite some time. The question now is, do they have a new shot at freedom after this bombshell uh, letter surfaced from uh, the Menendez's cousin, which we'll get to, as well as a new documentary that's out um, with some claims from the uh, a member of the boy band Menudo, who says he too was raped by Lyle and Eric's father, Jose Menendez. Without further ado, best guest today, Ann Bremer, Bremner, is a trial attorney, one of the nation's most recognized legal analysts. In her 35 years of practice, she has been lead counsel for many highly publicized court cases. She was a prosecuting attorney for the criminal division of the King County Prosecutor's Office in Seattle from 1983 to 1988. You've seen her everywhere, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and Headline News. And speaking of everywhere, Tim Jansen was just on CNN talking about the uh, Trump indictment. Uh, He is the famed Tallahassee criminal defense attorney. He's a partner in the firm that bears his name, Jansen and Davis. He's handled all kinds of complex civil, administrative, and criminal litigation, and he spent five years as a federal prosecutor. Uh, Tim Jansen, to you first, uh, just before we get started. Uh, These guys, like I said, have been behind bars, I believe, since 1989. They've been in jail or 1990. Um, Have they served their time? Should they be freed, in your opinion? Or are they uh, a pair of dangerous killers? What What do you say? Well, you look at the facts and, uh, you know, their defense was they were sexually assaulted, uh, except the fact that they claimed and gave false information to the police, said they went to the movies, said they came back and found their parents. And they were only discovered because of a psychologist whose girlfriend or ended up talking about the confession. Um, The second trial was different than the first trial. Obviously, had separate trials. 
sexual abuse was allowed in the first trials of each the defendant. The next trial came and uh, the judge combined the trials. No sexual abuse was allowed and they were convicted. So now we have new information, new evidence, and new evidence is the letter to the cousin who recently died. The question the court's going to have, is it really new evidence or why didn't Eric bring it to the attention of his lawyers at the time that he wrote the letter? Um, and then secondly, we the new evidence is the Menudo um, member who was their band, along with Duran Duran and Eurythmics, were being helped by the father, Jose, at RCA Records. So there's credibility there that Menudo would have been involved and around Jose Menendez. I think the habeas corpus by, by uh, Garagos is perfect because the appeals have run out. I think um, a judge could possibly, and the, and the state could come back and commute the sentence and say, listen, we really think this evidence should have come in. It's unfair. They really had a reasonable defense that was not kept allowed in. Now, they might have been convicted of manslaughter, which might have been 15, 20 years. They've served over 30. So I think there is a basis for a court, a prosecutor, or even the governor to maybe commute the sentence. But unlike Wendy, I wouldn't throw a parade for him like she espoused last night. Um, we do want victims to come forward, but we certainly don't want to have parades for people that shotgun and kill their parents, shooting them like 15 times. Uh, we don't want that. And uh, good, good to hear uh, your side there, Tim. Um, we'll get into some of Dr. Ann Burgess's testimony. Um, you know, she says that the children were basically irreparably, irreparably harmed by both their parents and uh, really felt fearful. And it was kind of a uh, bad pun I'm about to say, didn't mean it, but a trigger moment for them. Um, especially uh, leading up to the murders. Uh, there was a moment Anne talks about where a foyer door was closed and Eric thought that they were about to be confronted, uh, potentially killed themselves. And that's why they reacted the way they did. Um, Anne Bremner, your uh, bird's eye view of this, uh, you know, you, you've been around a long time. You've covered a lot of high profile cases. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you think that these boys now men uh, deserve to be freed at this point? Well, you know, I, it seems to me there was a change in the law where basically the habeas would be well-grounded because if a defendant was not allowed to put in an abuse, you know, excuse, we've called it defense, um, and then there could be grounds for the grant of a habeas petition. And the last time I looked at this case, and I've actually talked to Eric uh, at one point on the phone, he was very sympathetic, but I, I think that they were disallowed in the second trial. I mean, it was severe, severely curtailed there claim of their own imperfect self-defense defense. So it seems to me that this could be successful. I've always wondered why they shot Kitty, even if they talked about a trigger moment or anything else. The fact of the matter is they were focusing on their on their dad, Jose, but they killed their mom, too, in a really gruesome crime. So I think they should be set free legally, probably. Um, but morally, I look at this case as one of the most gruesome crimes we've seen in this nation, you know, over many, many decades. Um, can you tell us a little more? How long ago was it that you talked to Eric and was he looking for some legal advice? You know, I, I can't remember exactly. It was part of a documentary that you can find on the web, but it was um, produced by Nancy Saslow in San Francisco. 
and it was called um, Eric Menendez Speaks, I believe. And and I, I I found his rendition of what happened to be very sympathetic. And then the, with this bombshell uh, new information about others being abused, or it was one of the pre person being abused. Um, and he didn't talk to me as a lawyer, but he was, you know, looking to explore what I've just described, which is, is that there was a change in law saying, if you, at any time, I mean, it was basically retroactive, at any time you were disallowed uh, imperfect self-defense um, substantially, then you may be entitled to habeas or some relief. And uh, Tim, uh, for those of us who are not lawyers or legal minds, myself included, uh, what is a writ of habeas corpus? Why did Garagos go down that road? And he says uh, that typically uh, the court will respond within 45 days. And that, that timeline is definitely coming upon us very soon. But in broader terms, what is Garagos angling for legally here? Well, he has no other legal mechanism because all the appeals have run out. The habeas basically in, in Latin is produced a body. Produced a body. Uh, we have a body here that knee is is improperly where it should be. Uh, it gives the court jurisdiction to review. Uh, I think it's the proper motion, um, and I think the law has changed that if sexual abuse was not allowed, and there's ample evidence to to prove it, or at least enough that a court would probably allow it in at a trial. I think the habeas will be very very successful. Now whether they get a new trial, or they get a commuted sentence or time served. Um, you know, the governor could always go back and commute the sentence, I believe. I know in Florida he could. I don't know in California. I think he could. Uh, I think that's another possibility, maybe the last last thing. But And the state attorney, or the, uh, who's handling that matter now, who the elected official could review it, and they could join in the habeas and ask for a credit time served. Um, and to you, uh, by the way, Julie Frew in the UK, love Tim Jansen. No comment about the hair yet, but I'm sure those will come in momentarily, Tim. Um, so uh, just taking a step back uh, in history here, the, the two boys were tried separately, then young men, um, and both juries were deadlocked. So then they joined uh, together and were tried um, as one entity. And... Uh, that's when they were found guilty. But in this second trial, uh, testimony related to the abuse allegations was sharply limited uh, by the judge. And even when it came to um, Ann uh, Burgess's testimony in that trial, and I'm looking for the direct quote here, um, the judge basically, I don't want to say admonished the jurors, but uh, said something to the effect of don't take her testimony as gospel because they presented her as this expert witness. Um, Ann Bremner, are we living in very different times? Could you ever imagine a case today where they would completely omit or not completely, but for the, for the majority of the trial, uh, omit big portions of all this sexual abuse of all these allegations of sexual abuse? No. And of course this is a long time ago, but remember this second judge, was, I think, very upset with the way the first trial played out and wanted to correct what he saw as uh, not an injustice, but something that was not appropriate, i.e. he wouldn't allow four TV cameras, I believe, in the courtroom a second time, you know, severely curtailed the, the, the imperfect self-defense, which is the sexual abuse and, 
and um, self-defense that today would be very acceptable as a defense. But back then, this judge was saying, I'm going to totally have a straightforward trial. And what he did was basically allow a conviction by commenting on this expert, but also disallowing evidence which would have supported their, their defense. I think Anne froze up there a ton. No. Go ahead, Anne. Oh, I just, I'm just saying that the second judge tried to correct what he thought was uh, an imperfect, unjust trial because it was TV coverage. It was the first, I think it was the first court TV trial. Yes. And it was also one where there was, you know, all this evidence that he thought shouldn't have come in. So he went, it's like the pendulum swings. He went exactly the opposite direction. No TV cameras, none of this defense. And by the way, this expert, you know, there's not a lot of foundation for what this expert has to say. So it was inevitable, I think, that there would be uh, guilty verdicts in the second trial. And, uh, of course, the OJ trial came in between, and uh, that was a circus, so I think that weighed as well. But, uh, Tim, um, to you, same same question. I mean, can you can you imagine in 2023 if, um, if suspects were sexually assaulted in the manner that Lyle and Eric claimed to have been and a judge not allowing it? Um, do you see a courtroom today, um, you know, disallowing that kind of testimony? I don't think they would today, but I will tell you in my experience, I've tried hundreds of cases. Judges make decisions on cases and you can tell in their rulings how they feel about a case. And some, they, they sometimes are supposed to be fair, but they, they're partial too. And, and they get sometimes too involved. They're supposed to be the referee, but like a baseball umpire, they can control the game. Um, they have, they're active. They can be very controlling on what testimony. If that judge says don't treat her testimony as gospel, I would have gone to the bench. I would have asked for a mistrial that the judge was involving himself in credibility of a witness before the jury. Uh, I recall one judge where the jury acquitted the defendant. And before the jury left, the judge said, I just want to let you know, he did this crime before like five years ago, but I wasn't allowed to tell you that. I just want you to know that before you all leave horrendous, basically killing the jurors saying what crap they were. We don't need judges like that. We don't need judges like that. This judge looked like he wanted to fix what he thought was wrong in the first two trials. He wasn't going to have TV. He wasn't going to let this shenanigans of this so-called sexual abuse. And, and look what happened. The boys didn't get a fair trial. Now, they should have been convicted of manslaughter, but their sentence would have been completely different than what they got. Uh, and I found that quote, actually. But uh, Eric Menendez uh, testified during that trial that his father had molested him uh, from the age for 12 years, beginning at the age of six to 18. Uh, prosecutors used the word uh, fiction when it came to abuse. And Stanley Weisberg, who was the judge, Judge Stanley Weisberg, he warned jurors not to take Ann Burgess's testimony as gospel. So knowing that, would you have done the same thing as Tim just uh, alluded to? Would you have gone up to the uh, bench and asked for a mistrial right away? How would you have handled it? Well, probably. And I think Leslie Abramson was the hero and the hero of the first trial and was not involved in the second. So that was a different dynamic, dynamic as well. She's very dedicated and did an excellent job in the first trial. 
I mean, fiction and prosecutors shouldn't use those kind of words anyway. I mean, you should basically, you're the people's uh, representative and you win when you made out justice. So for a judge to basically come in and say something like that, sure, I'd be up there asking for a mistrial because there was a lot of unfairness in the second trial. Um, Tim, to you, let's get into some of this evidence here. Uh, the first is this letter, and we went over this with Anne last night, so some of this might be a little redundant to the audience, but there was a letter um, Eric sent to his cousin, who is now deceased. I believe he died of a, a drug overdose. His name was Andy Cano, um, and somehow this surfaced, uh, got into his mother's hands, Andy's mother's hands, who then gave it to a journalist, and it came out recently. Um, but this letter, and this is a direct quote now from Eric, uh, to his cousin back before the crimes took place. He says, I've been trying to avoid dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I cannot explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen, and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might uh, come in, and I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. So obviously they had conversations here, Tim. Uh, you just don't know dad like I do. He's crazy. He's warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. I mean, Tim, that gives you a, a real window into the fear, um, the trepidation, and the obviously disgusting molestation that was going on. Um, now with this letter surfacing, um, is it justifiable uh, for a judge to look at this or will they simply kind of say, why didn't Eric present this 30 years ago? Well, you got to look at it now. In a you got to look at it right now. Is it evidence that would be relevant and admissible in a trial? And I think everybody will look at it and say he was describing his present sense at a time prior to the event. It's clear what he's discussing. He's not talking sex. But when you look at that, my father's disgusting. I can't... It's clearly, and it was eight months, I believe, before the murders. So he wasn't penning this letter like 24 hours before he did it. I think it's reliable. I think it would be admissible. Um, and I think the question is, why didn't Eric bring it to the attention of his lawyers? Maybe he did. And maybe the cousin, you send an investigator out, they talk to the cousin. He goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, then you had a, you had a dead end. You you. You know you wrote it, or maybe he forgot with all the abuse he went through. Um, maybe he didn't recall it. But now that you have it, it's clear the lawyers didn't have it. Leslie Abrams would, would certainly have moved to get that document in and introduced it. So I think it's clear. I think it's relevant. I think it um, could be admissible, and I think it's a good basis. But then you add on the Menudo band member. And that's a separate person, indistinct from family member, who corroborates the activities or actions of Jose Menendez. Um, it's STS Nation is always keeping me straight here. Um, and Mia says he died in 2003, although ironically, I feel like 2003 is recently, but it's not. <laughs> and, uh, and then Heather tells me uh, Andy's mom found the letter while cleaning his room after his death, but that was a long time ago, um, and then it resurfaced recently. But what kind of uh, legal water does a letter like this hold in now? Well, I think as Tim just described, in a lot, it's a present sense impression, and um, it also could be used to rebut 
what may be um, argued to be recent fabrication by the defendants. Um, there's a couple of ways it can come in under the evidence rules. And it's very striking. I mean, corroboration, corroboration, corroboration. That's what you need in a case like this. They can come forward and say, you know, we, we, we were scared. This was, you know, imperfect self-defense. And the state comes back and says, yeah, you were like, you know, spending money on fancy cars and Rolexes and everything else. And you did it for money. So it was important to have this kind of corroborating evidence come in for the defense. And do you happen to know uh, anything about the inheritance here or laws regarding this? Are there any laws preventing inheritance, even if it's manslaughter, sure. at least in, in Washington state? Oh, absolutely. Slayer statute. I mean, if you've caused the death of the person you're going to inherit from, um, you're SOL. I mean, you're not going to get the money. And and so, um, but in this particular case, you know, that they they would never have been found out if they hadn't there hadn't been basically a disclosure to the psychologist or psychiatrist and, and then this argument by the state that there was a threat, et cetera, and all of a sudden it comes in that there was a confession. So it, they were doing very well until that um, huge mishap in their case um, where they completely tubed themselves, I think. And it's, it's just amazing to me that with the privilege with the therapist, psychologist, or psychiatrist, that that evidence also ultimately came in against them. Uh, Carolyn, uh, tell me she joined Patreon. Thank you so much. Uh, your name is not lighting up in green. I will ch have the ch chief technical officer resolve that. We're uh, surviving the survivor at Gmail. If you're still having a problem, uh, reach out. But thank you again. And look at this, a global show with Henchy Held tuning in from Israel, the Holy Land. Wow. Um, watching us all the way there. So uh, there is a documentary uh, that came out called uh, Menudo and the Menendez Brothers, Boys Betrayed. And uh, Tim, in that, um, the band member, Roy Rossello, and there was a lot of band members of Menudo who kind of uh, went in and out uh, over the years. But in this docuseries, Roy Rossello alleges that Jose Menendez, of course, Lyle and Eric's father, that he molested, drugged, and raped him um, when uh, a teen, when he was still a teenager, Roy was uh, performing with a band. Of course, Jose Menendez was the head of RCA Records. Um, and Roy Rossello says, and I quote here, that's the man here that raped me. That is the pedophile. It's time for the world to know the truth. Um, and went on to discuss that uh, at great length. Um, is there an issue here, number one, of credibility, because it took him so long, although it takes people who are sexually abused a long time to come out. And Burgess was saying, in a lot of cases, especially men, they never come out. But um, how does this hold up in a court of law? I, I think that's true. Um, I had a case one time where a young man, I was representing a defendant, and the young man did not want to come in and testify at a trial that the older gentleman gave him alcohol and performed oral sex on him. And I'm waiting for a sexual battery charge. And lo and behold, the state files an information for a misdemeanor battery. And, and I found out later it was because the victim said there was no way in hell he was going to walk into a courtroom and say another man performed oral sex on him. Mm -hmm. um, victims do, and I can understand why a band member who's publicly profiled out there going around and, you know, he's not going to want to say he was molested and raped by the head of the record company. One, 
He could have ruined his career with that record company and other companies, and it would have portrayed him in a very poor light, probably with his band members and his fans. So I think there's reasons that's reasonable, especially way back then. Now I think victims are more coming out because they're, people are believing them, giving them the counseling, and not judging them. Um, but we still have sometimes we have rape cases where it's regret and it's not rape. So you got a dichotomy that's going back and forth all the time. Is it really rape or are you just mad because the guy's not calling you anymore and he feels like he took advantage of you or is it really, really rape? Um, and then when you get a kid that was really raped and doesn't disclose it, well, was it really rape? You never disclosed it. So hopefully, and most juries really figure it out. Um, no one acts the same. No one responds the same. But maybe this he came out after what happened and this letter he came out. I don't know when that documentary was. Uh, documentary was released very recently. I think it was this this past year. Um, I am not T. Payne, uh, Ann Bremner. Uh, would their sentences be overturned if their appeals got approved or would they have to have a new trial or do we not know? Well, we don't know, but I think most likely a new trial. I, I, I can't imagine that their sentences, their convictions and sentences would be uh, completely vacated. I mean, there's a lot of relief that could be granted, but I think we'd have to look at the habeas petition, too, from Mark Garagos on what relief he requested. <clears throat> but I think a retrial with that evidence coming in would be the remedy, most likely. Mm. Um, Roxanne A. says, Ann Burgess is great. Nothing but respect for her. However, she was hired by the defense. And she did what the defense experts do. Um, and is this a valid point um, from Roxanne? I mean, Ann Burgess is a world-renowned, um, you know, sort of profiler and abuse expert. But is it a valid point because she is working for one side? Yeah, Roxanne makes a great point. And a lot of times in trials, the argument is that these experts cancel each other out. I mean, that's just that's a danger. On the other hand, you know, these experts, she's got great expertise and her testimony is helpful to the jury. The jury gets the jury instructions saying how they can weigh expert credibility. And there's a lot of factors. It's their experience, um, any bias they may have, you know, what the what they're armed with in terms of information, you know, etc. So jurors evaluate experts every day. Look at the um, the George Floyd trial. How many experts testified in that case? There were a lot. Pulmonologists, there were pathologists. There were respiratory experts beyond pulmonologists, as I recall. Tons of experts on both sides, but yet the jury reached a verdict um, very strongly and quickly in spite of the conflicting expert testimony. Uh, so, Tim, that's a good point. A lot of times, um, do you find that jurors are leaning uh, into their emotion more so than the expert testimony, Tim? They have a gut instinct? I think they do. Um, I know when I hire my expert, I hire one that the state hires all the time who is credible because it'd be hard for them to come back and say he's some, some quack. And you really don't want to hire some expert. If the expert calls you and says, Hey, what, what's your defense? No, no, it doesn't work that way. You do your evaluation. You tell me what you come up with and then we'll determine. But whenever they say, Hey, what, tell me what your theory is before they even review anything. You've got a hired gun there. You want to be careful because they'll, they'll fold like a cheap suit. Um, and I never do that. I, I tell them, you, you, you do it. You look at it. Give me your best experience. What's your view? And if it's consistent with what our defense is going to be, we'll use them. If it's not, thank you so much. Um, good luck. 
Uh, lest you think we are not a global show, Mekla Chakrabarty. Hello from Mumbai, India. Never fail to watch your show. This is my first time live. This is why the YouTube is amazing. Uh, can broadcast around the world. Uh, so there are some quotes here. So Lyle and Eric Menendez were both interviewed about this uh, testimony from Roy Rossello. Not really testimony, but what he had to say uh, in this movie. And uh, the quote goes, I always hoped and believed that one day the truth about my dad would come out, Eric Menendez says. Um, but I never wished for it to come out like this. The result of trauma that another child had suffered. And then Lyle goes on and says, we'd heard rumors that something might have happened with Menudo through the years. You know that that would have made a difference at trial because the entire trial centered on the public's belief about these events. Um, and, uh, you know, these are smart guys. One went to Princeton on a tennis scholarship. I forget where the other one went. But um, he says that, you know, the court of public opinion, it was all, everything was centered on whether these abuse allegations were true or not. Um, again, how much credence does, in your opinion, does a guy like Roy Rossello, you know, nearly 30 years later coming out, um, how much credence does he lend to the legal argument here? Well, I think one of the biggest things we see with with victims, male and female, and otherwise, and, and I used to be a sex assault prosecutor and have a lot of civil um, sexual assault and child abuse sexual assault cases. The biggest thing we see is shame. So you see, it, it's not surprising, like Tim says, or, or said, that you're going to have a delay um, in reporting uh, or some that never report. So I think... That's explainable. I think jurors today get that. I think everybody gets that. The child abuse damages are lifelong, and people are very reluctant to come forward because of shame. I don't know why the shame is there. I mean, I'd like to have an expert really explain that to me, but I understand to me, everyone I've seen, almost every one of my clients and victims I have as a prosecutor in essay cases had some measure of shame. Yeah. And again, Ann Burgess on the show last night basically said, um, in many instances, especially among males, they some they just never come forward because they're too shamed by it. And Tim was talking about his case. Uh, back to you, Anne. Uh, legally, this is an interesting question. Is it legally acceptable or allowed for a judge to not allow abuse evidence in their trial? Is there any argument to be made? Some was let in. It was just a much lesser degree. But um, is there any kind of legal argument to be made about what was allowed or not allowed, or is it just too far gone at this point? Well, I think the argument's being made now under that change in the law that I talked about that says if you were disallowed an imperfect self-defense, which is it, basically, it's not true self-defense because there was not an immediate threat to the Menace brothers. I mean, it's more imperfect based on the history of sexual or other abuse. So I, I think it's a, uh, it's a valid defense, and I, we have to understand that back then, it was pretty novel to have an imperfect self-defense. I mean, this has evolved over a long period of time. They called it the abuse excuse. Um, it was ridiculed in the media and, and in legal circles. Today, we accept it, but it wasn't that long ago that it was not accepted, and self-defense was purely what it states or appears to me, which is you have an imminent threat to yourself, and so therefore you're entitled legally to defend yourself. Imperfect self-defense is different. Hmm. Look at this. Uh, good afternoon from Jersey, of course, my home state. But uh, 
Bugs, that is uh that's a chief technical officer right there. I wonder what she's doing here. She should be handling all the technical issues. <laughs> Get out of here, Bugs, and go work on the uh, on, on the show. Um Catherine asked a question, Tim, and we'll start taking some viewer questions here. Why isn't this simply self-defense when you're terrified after years of abuse and feel like there's no way out? What guy at the time of the trial would want to talk freely about it back then? Um, so what about a self-defense? You know, that that's kind of what um, the defense argued, but I don't think they were able to argue it as vigorously as they wanted to. Well, they would have had a better case if... Uh his body was found in Eric's bedroom. Uh, he had no clothes on when he was shotgun. There wasn't an imminent threat. Um, could have been. I mean, if you if you fear you're going to be raped, you have a right to defend yourself. But that isn't what happened. I mean, what happened was parents were watching the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston when they were shotgunned in the living room. Um, so it's not a self-defense case in that manner, but it wasn't. I mean, their mindset when they did it, clearly you see these cases where people are stabbed like 50, 60 times. It clearly was personal. They certainly wanted to make sure that they were dead because they, they, it was such a horrible crime scene. So that mindset, the defense should have argued that they were reliving the sexual assault and they feared every time they fired the gun, they felt what was happening to them for years. And I think they could have got something more, less than a first degree murder and less than a life without parole. No one is arguing self-defense. And that would be, Mark is not going to argue that on the habeas. His position, I believe, is they would that evidence would have proven they were convicted of a lesser offense. They've served more time than they could have possibly gotten if they got convicted. And justice is, equity would be not a new trial, but release and give them time served. That's what I think his argument will be. Uh, Michelle Cavernos, uh, love from Cape Town, South Africa, a friend of the show. She's she's always uh, either tuning in or watching on the replay. So thanks to Mish. And look at this. She's already changed her name, STS Chief Everything, uh, as she is reaching out to people here. Uh, she told me she was working out. I guess her workout is over already. Baby Doll, friend of the show. Hey, hey y'all, STS fam. Um, so, and to you, I had a guy named Hector Farrell on the show not long ago. He is a former corrections officer, and uh, he was a lieutenant in the Department of Corrections, and he oversaw the yard where Lyle and Eric are now reunited in a prison outside San Diego uh, at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. He came out publicly and said that uh, the brothers have a, quote-unquote, sense of entitlement and referred to them as narcissists. He basically said that anytime uh, a camera would come into the yard, because there's some other high-profile uh, prisoners there, like Suge Knight is there, uh, that they would try to get FaceTime, um, try to get their story out. Uh, does this hurt them? Uh, maybe not in the in the court of law, but in the court of public opinion, that you've got this guy who claims he says he didn't know him well, but he and he, he purposely kind of ignored them because he didn't want them to have the feeling that they were special. But um, just the fact that a guy like this goes public, does it hurt the case? 
I mean, publicly maybe, but you, you see that with Betty Broderick or Mary Kay Letourneau, you know, different high-profile defendants when they're, when they're in prison. You know, everybody, oh, I know them. They're totally entitled. They're totally guilty. I mean, I kind of take that with a grain of salt. We had one with Mary Kay Letourneau in the tabloids that said, Mary Kay Letourneau's beauty secrets from prison. You know, I mean, it's just that kind of thing where you think, well, somebody wants to talk. Someone wrote a book about her that met her in prison. It was called Mass with Mary because they went to Catholic Mass together. But I, I just, it's like a jailhouse cinch. I mean, I don't know. It's, I, I don't find it to be credible, but in this day and age, you know, everybody's a journalist. Nobody's a journalist. Someone's coming out and saying they know what's going on and they know these people and they're entitled, arrogant, and guilty. Uh, and back to you, Anne, from Mary Patterson. Do the lawyers think at this point having a new trial or their sentences commuted can be for political reasons? Is there political pressure to free these guys? Well, um, I, the last time I checked, Gavin Newsom turned down Leslie Van Houten, one of the Manson girls, even though the parole board recommended her release after how many years? Since, what, 1969, 70 or 71? Whenever she was convicted, she got the death sentence, I think, and then they commuted that because it was thrown out in California. Um, political, I don't know. I, and this is a very controversial case. I find them to be sympathetic. I think a lot of people do, given the, the injustice that happened with the second judge. We just can't stand for that. It doesn't matter who it is. You know, the bottom line is, is you've got to have a fair trial for each and every person that's tried in this country, you know, whether they're um, privileged, you know, whether they're guilty, whether they're innocent. I think that the line from the Kill a Mockingbird in closing argument from Atticus Finch was, we're not created equal. You know, some are smarter than other people, some are richer, some are poorer, some ladies bake better cakes, he said, to an all-male jury. But the bottom line is we're all created equal in the courtroom, including the Menendez brothers. Can you imagine telling a jury that women bake better cakes today? You'd, uh, you'd be canceled immediately, Tim Jansen. Um, look at this comment from Kimberly C. Been seeing Ann Bremner on TV for a long time. Always been a fan of her and her work. Best guest, STS Nation. Uh, Mia says here, um, it's been 30 years since the trial, and Ann, this is Ann Burgess, is still saying the same thing. It's not what defense experts do. She really does believe the brothers. Um, Tim, kind of moving over to some of the uh, testimony from Ann Burgess. I went back and watched a lot of it. By the way, she is, I'm going to give her age, but I will. She's like 86 years old now, and she looked younger back then. And she's still going incredibly strong. She's, she's amazing. I wish I had half her energy. But um, she said, uh, it is very common, uh, this was her testimony, for abused children to feel precisely the way Eric Menendez said he felt just before killing his parents, without any adult to trust, with no place to go, and seemingly out of uh, options, a combination that produces intense fear. Uh, and then goes on to say, on the night of the killings, the parents and the sons, meaning Lyle and Eric, got into an argument in the mansion foyer, and the parents closed the door to the TV room. Eric Menendez viewed that action as a sign of imminent danger, Ann Burgess testified. An outsider might not view the closing of the door that way, she said, but Eric Menendez was hypervigilant after years of abuse, his brain biologically altered to be attuned to cues that outsiders would ignore. Um, so she really pinpoints it to this time uh, when this door shuts and he literally feels like this is the end, like he might be attacked. Mm -hmm. um, it's 
it's pretty emotional. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty heavy. Uh, do you think again, if the parameters were different and the judge allowed more of this testimony in, this would have carried a lot more weight back then? I think it would have. And I think his fear would have been reasonable considering the evidence that would have been admitted and how it occurred over years. And the fact that I think Lyle or someone mentioned they were going to go public, um, that the father, he would be in danger. The father would lose everything. And it is quite clear that um, he felt that way. Um, I don't know. I, I think the facts, I don't know where they got the shotgun, if it was dad's shotgun. I know there was evidence. I saw a little bit of the testimony that they had two shotguns in the dad's closet. But I don't know if those are the same ones that were used. Um, but I'm curious where he got the shotgun, if he got it from his dad's closet after he heard the, and he was going to take an active uh, preemption to prevent himself from being murdered. But do I think it was a reasonable fear based on all the evidence we have now? Yeah. Uh, someone's abusing you sexually for years and everything to lose, and it's gone on and on and on. And your brother confronts him, and then you hear the door shut. Um, there is a reasonable fear that uh, danger lies ahead. But was it reasonable to go out there while they're laying on the? In the that's why it's not self-defense. Okay, it's not self-defense. He wasn't in imminent danger. If the father walked into the room with no clothes on in his bedroom, he probably could have claimed self-defense. Um, but that's not what happened. And killing the mother, uh, that was clearly not self-defense. I don't think they were in fear of the mother harming them. Uh, so I don't think it's self-defense. I wouldn't have. I don't think there was any chance at all self-defense against the mother or the well, father. Well, Tim, uh, Ann Burgess brought that up last night, that uh, the mother was complicit in that. Yeah. In the fact that she knew it, she ignored it, she turned a blind eye. She was also an alcoholic uh, and a drug addict. Um, and, and, you know, had her own issues going on. But again, is that enough? Is that enough for a courtroom to say, well, she just she was complicit because she basically denied it was happening? The jury and the, and the women on the jury will not think highly of Kitty. Because as a mother, your number one role in life is to protect your child. And even though we've changed or everything today is different, that motherly protection still goes with with mothers. And the fact that she heard and turned the volume up or her children were being molested by the father, um, that's really troubling, very problematic. She didn't deserve to be murdered, but um, she certainly was complicit. Uh, today, she would be arrested. She would be charged. Um, Department of Family Children Services, if you know your children are being harmed and you don't take steps to do anything, you can be charged with a crime. Um, and today, you have to report it. Uh, so she should have had to report it. She did nothing. And she, her mental and alcoholism may have been a problem. She may have been abused physically, um, but she still could have been charged. Um, Wendy Murphy talked about how Jose Menendez also had a porn addiction. He had unlimited finances. He was allegedly getting young prostitutes. It was a, it was a mess of a situation. Um once again, lest you think we are not global, Montessori mindset. Hello from Beijing, China. For once, catching a live, usually in the replay crew. Uh, happy to have you here live. And then we go straight from uh, Beijing to Germany. Look at this. <laughs> Tim and Ann bringing out uh, the global crew here. 
Um, and to you, this part gets difficult, uh, but I think it's important. So Ann Burgess, who spent over 50 hours, it's important, important to point out, uh, speaking to Eric Menendez, said that uh, sexually abused children uh, always have a label or in almost every case, a label for the act. Uh, in this case, Eric referred to sex with his brother, with his father as knees. He would call it, it's time to go to do knees uh, because of the posture he had to assume. Um, so they had their own terminology. And um, and Burgess offered this testimony. This is graphic, everyone. Uh, Eric testified that he used to put cinnamon in his father's coffee and oatmeal, hoping to make oral sex more palatable. In her interviews with him conducted the last several years while he was in jail, Eric Menendez had his own quote unquote special way of describing the abuse, talking about knees. So Ann Burgess makes the point that there is no way he'd be making this up. It's one thing to accuse your father, but to have these sorts of sordid details about the lengths he had to go through to survive this abuse, it's impossible. Um, these details basically are a truth serum of sorts to show that he was in fact being honest uh, about all this abuse. But I don't know that uh, the jurors took Ann's word because of what the judge admonished him to, you know, to do, which is not take it as gospel. What say you? Well, right. I mean, you take an excellent expert like this with very important things to say for the defense, but then you don't give the defense a chance to, back up what she has to say with real facts. I mean, that's a lot of what happened in the second trial. So um, it, it's one of those kinds of things you look back now when we're cognizant about mental health, about sexual abuse, about understanding victims. We didn't have that understanding back then. I mean, it's been a long time ago that this case was tried. And we've come a long way. And I think that if there's retried today, it'd be potentially a different result. But, you know, the fact is, Kitty, like Tim said, you know, Kitty was killed. And that's a hard sell for imperfect self-defense. It's not a self-defense case. There's no imminent threat, but it's basically something where it's imperfect and you say you killed because you were basically provoked to do so by years of sexual or other abuse. Part of it was the battered women syndrome. That's how it first started, you know, in DV cases where, you know, quote unquote women, it could be any intimate partner, but back then it was a battered women defense, basically saying he beat me up so many times, I just had to kill him. The Burning Bed with Farrah Fawcett, I think was the mm -hmm. kind of seminal movie about it to just show that that can happen and it actually is legally justifiable on the side, potentially. Um, some more testimony. So there was a guy named, uh, Tim, there's a guy named John Conti who we had on too. He's a very well-known uh, social worker, doctor in the field of domestic violence. He testified on behalf of Lyle and um, the, the state brought up some pro, uh, some uh, inconsistencies in, in testimony, and I don't remember the exact inconsistency that, that came up. However, John Conti says uh, he rejects these inconsistencies as being unimportant because there was so much confusion uh, and, and great anxiety, as he puts it, uh, in their lives. The state came out and said if they were so confused, why did they immediately hide their shell casings. Um, it's a good argument by the state. Uh, how would you counter that, being that you're a uh, an amazing defense attorney? What would you say to that? Would you go with your uh, expert witness who says, look, they're confused. Some things they, they could process, they knew to get rid of the shell casings, but other things they couldn't 
necessarily figure out? Well, you certainly couldn't go to an insanity defense. Um, they knew what they were doing. They were covering up the crime scene. Um, they left. Um, they pretended to come back. They put on this act. Eric was crying when the police showed up. They said they were going to go to a movie. He forgot his ID. So that is all uh, premeditated. That was all planned. That shows they're trying to cover a crime. That doesn't show that they were so mentally out of it, so stricken in fear of life. They probably would have been better if they would have just called 911 and said, I thought my dad was going to shotgun and or he was going to rape me again. I couldn't take it anymore. He probably would have done better and stayed there and stayed there and said we were sexually abused and we were threatened that they were going to murder us because we were going to go to the law enforcement. That would have been a better fact for them. And they probably would have got a, a resolution by the, the state attorney that they could have lived with and they'd be out. But they they didn't. They they came up with this facade. They went out and spent money like drunken soldiers, sailors. And, it, and then they had no no one gave them any sympathy. They all came across back then TV buying Rolex watches, buying Porsches, going on trips, that they, that they did it for the money. And they played right into that theme that the state had. And when they lost their defense of abuse, they were done. And, and Tim brings up a good point. So uh, there's a famous photo of them uh, courtside at a Lakers playoffs game uh, not long after the, the murders took place. Um, and the state argued it was about, you know, money. And Burgess said last night that those Rolexes that Tim just mentioned, that they, they gave those away. Uh, and John Conti, um, who is this expert witness, a real, a real expert in the field of domestic violence. Uh, by the way, I, th I think he's up in your neck of the woods in Washington. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, said that uh, Lyle Menendez was never dishonest with me and said that, you know, they were just in a kind of an altered state of mind. But how much does it still hurt them that there's this photo of them at the Lakers game and the, the notion that they were driving in sports cars and spending this money in Beverly Hills? How much does that hurt them? Huge. It's huge. I mean, it was the state's case. You know, like the, the total, you don't need a motive. We always say that, but they certainly had a motive to argue, which was financial gain. And keeping in mind that Jose was a pretty strict parent, they had kind of a history of some burglaries and some misdeeds in their own neighborhood. He was very ashamed of that. And he went and paid off his eyebrow in, in the accounts. He went and paid off some of those alleged victims. I mean, he, he ruled that house as an iron fist, aside from whether or not there was sexual abuse. So the minute that he's gone, I mean, they just went wild. Like Tim said, like drunken sailors, they were spending on everything. It was just a wild and very visible and visual um, spending spree based on a crime spree. And so as a prosecutor, that's golden to argue to a jury. I mean, financial motive, inheritance, I mean, it's perfect in an imperfect defense, self-defense case. And, and Anne, right back to you from Andy's school here. Um, after all these years, is it unfair to others who've committed murder for any abuse who don't have the spotlight on their case that they're still in forgotten about? These men have been humanized. Does it set a bad precedent or is it unfair and unjust? I'm sure there's other people sitting in prison under similar circumstances. What do you say? I agree. I mean, I think we have the best system in the world, but it's not perfect. I mean, you're entitled to a fair trial, but not a perfect trial. I think the Supreme Court has said 
Sure, everyone should be able to avail themselves to what the Menendez brothers are doing with a high-profile lawyer. Can they do that? A lot of times, no. They don't have the financial resources. But the fact is, we're paying attention to these kinds of defenses now and recognizing they cannot be disallowed. And hopefully, that spills over to other cases where the defense and a habeas would be well-deserved and relief would be deserved in a new trial or dismissal. Uh, Tim Jansen, and we'll start to wrap up soon. Uh, Kimberly says, uh, does anyone think there's a chance for an Alford plea? Uh, Tim, if you can explain what an Alford plea is and if there is a chance here. Well, normally an Alford plea is you admit what you did, but then you claim you really didn't commit the crime, but you're doing this, uh, reserving your innocence while you're admitting your guilt. I, I don't think that's the case. I think what they would do is say they would they would plead to a manslaughter charge and credit time served. And they would admit to the manslaughter. They, they're not going to get self-defense. Um, I, I don't think if this gets any traction, this habeas, I think it's going to be worked out between the state attorney and the, and the defense, Mark. They're going to work something out. Uh, there's no reason now, 32 years later, to say we want to retry this case. You know, I don't know if they could even find the witnesses. Half the witnesses may be dead. Um, the evidence may not be. Uh, protected. After all the appeals, a lot of times these police departments, they get rid of evidence. They destroy it uh, because they don't have the room for it. So uh, I, I think it's going to be a matter of either they're going to get a credit time served to manslaughter or a commutation from the governor. Um, but, you know, back then, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, no governor would have commuted this sentence. Um, Gavin Newsom is quasi a presidential candidate. Uh, he's out there talking it, but he's not really announced. He turned down the Manson uh, murders, which was a high profile case back then. Um, we had Squeaky Fromm in prison here in Tallahassee for a long time. So I don't know if Newsom would do it. It might be enough public outcry if it proves that these people didn't get a fair trial, that he might do it. And what, he, what is he doing? He's commuting the sentence to 32 years. Not a lot of bad politi politics there. Good point. Very good point. And he may very well run. Um, your Everyday Sheep says there were rifles in the house, but they bought the shotguns two days before. Tim had brought that up. That's um, a bad fact. That's a really bad fact. Yeah. If they bought shotguns two days before, that's premeditated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and to you, it's interesting how lawyers look at it right away. Tim is... Uh, Rethinking things. Um, to Ann Bremner, uh, from Mia, have you worked any cases, I think you said you had, where battered women, uh, woman syndrome was used as a defense for a murder charge? And what were the circumstances and the outcome of those cases? Well, it's actually one that my ex-husband tried, and it, I think it was the first battered women's defense case in Washington State. And it was very novel at the time. Um, he's somebody that actually represented Ted Bundy back in the day up here in Washington State. So he took on this kind of novel defense and was successful in bringing it forward. So I know it by osmosis, but very interesting because back then when he had that case, it was just something people just didn't accept. I mean, and I can't even remember the outcome of the trial. I just remember how novel that defense was, which is basically my husband beat me up for so long, you know, that I had to kill him. I just knew he was going to really kill me. And, you know, with domestic violence cases, this, the, Pattern of violence, we know, escalates often to death. So that was a reasonable fear on the part of the alleged victim slash defendant in a murder case. Mm. 
Uh, Kimberly Collins says, I believe if you kill your abuser, there should not be prison. You have no idea what victims is, uh, of sexual abuse go through. It's so debilitating emotionally and physically, it is not uh, self-defense. So uh, the court of public opinion weighing in. Uh, the mother sexually abused, Kitty sexually abused Lyle, which has been discussed. Why don't people know this? Um, I don't know if that played a role. Kitty Menendez herself talked about how she was sexually uh, molested. So this was uh, not a healthy family. It went back generationally. Uh, maybe that is why she turned a blind eye, not condoning it, but uh, she herself was a victim uh, that came out. Um, her, I think her sister or sister-in-law, I want to say sister, has come out and said that the brothers should still be um, in prison, but other members of the family say they should be released. Uh, one other big thing, and then we'll begin to wrap. Uh, Tim Jansen, at the trial, there was a gentleman named Dr. Leon Jerome Ozeal. He was a therapist that Eric confessed to. He was ordered to go see Dr. Ozeal, but Dr. Ozeal was a shady character. He made uh, Eric sign something that he could go back and tell his parents everything. He also tried to basically get him to confess on tape. Long story short, this guy ended up losing his license and does uh, some sort of sex seminars in Oregon State now. But uh, what about this X Factor, Tim? Because he played a big role. I mean, he was the quote unquote expert, but he turns out to be uh, basically a, you know, a charlatan of sorts. So uh, how important is that factor? Well, I don't know how the evidence was admitted. Uh, I don't know what they signed, if they were adults when they signed this waiver. He had this patient, I guess, he was having an affair with. Mm -hmm. She was sitting outside the room and she overheard the conversation. And then he abused her. She went to the police and said, oh, by the way, I've got these tapes of this confession. I, I didn't get delve into it. I'd love to know how that was admissible under, and it wasn't protected by doctor-patient. Uh, it wasn't a future crime. It was a past crime. Um, but he should have lost his license for many reasons. And I can tell you, when you have a client, you want him to go to a psychiatrist or, to talk about it. Because when you have these horrible offenses, they're looking at a lot of prison time. They can't talk to their parents. They don't want to talk to their parents. You don't really want to talk to them until you have a defense because they say something. It limits your ability to call them on the stand. So the only person they really can talk to may be a priest or their psychiatrist. But then you're scared to death who the psychiatrist is that they'll end up coming in and testifying against him. Um, it's a problem that I have in my practice um, because you don't want the person not to be able to talk to anybody while the trial is pending because it's so emotional, so stressful. They need to get that, be able to talk to somebody. But in this case, it looks like it's the only reason why this crime was solved. If they didn't talk and this confession didn't come out, I don't think they would have ever had enough evidence to prosecute. And you have a doctor who commits malpractice multiple ways, having sex with his patient, releasing confidential information. Um, it's just horrendous. And it, it's terrible for the system. Um, and it, it really doesn't give lawyers who have to make those decisions uh, a, good, a good basis to feel comfortable that you're advising your client to do that comfortably. Just hmm. an interesting comment, by the way. Will this live stream be able to uh, to be watched after? Uh, yes, it will. Uh, they always are. Uh, Rachel Wyatt, my parents use money and gifts to make up for their emotional and physical abuse. 
So I have no uh, issue with the brothers spending after the murders. Buying things can be therapeutic, a therapeutic coping mechanism. So that sounds like a person uh, who has been through it. Um, Ann Bremner, uh, back to you and back to Mark Aragos, kind of coming full circle, um, kind of pulling back the legal curtain. You know, he filed this writ of habeas corpus. What is the process now? Um, again, he said it would be about 45 days. Is there anything that he can kind of actively work on or does he just have to sit still right now and wait for the, you know, to hear from the court? Well, I think it's important for him to keep it in the public eye. I mean, that's what I'd be doing right now if I was Mark Garagos, because you never know who else is going to come forward and have information that could potentially be helpful to, to the defendants. This is a very high-profile case, but the interest has waned, waxed and waned, but it's back now. Why not seize that opportunity to try and see if there's anybody else that can come forward to support the writ? Hmm. Alex here says... Uh... How do they sleep at night? I don't know if it's because of the abuse or because of what they did, but uh, either way, they probably don't sleep too well. And one of the things that uh, Ann Burgess talked about was uh, these recurring nightmares that Eric had about this big green monster that would get bigger and bigger and bigger, which was his father, as he would shrink and shrink and shrink. Um, Anna... Lissette here, Tim, to you. A bigger question here is, does life without parole even serve a useful purpose in this case? As was said, maybe the defense would go for a lesser uh, offense with time served. Do you agree with that, Tim? I do. I think the horrendous nature of the offense, who the people were, high profile people, a wife and a husband being shotgunned, and then these people given the state a compelling argument that they had a motive didn't give the state any reason to work out any kind of resolution to them. Uh, I don't know if the lawyers, you know, not this case, but other cases, I've seen lawyers in order to build up their own reputation and get on TV, turn down plea offers that were in the best interest of the client. I'm not saying that happened in this case. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying I've seen it in a couple cases in Tallahassee. And it did not serve the client's best interest. They would have been dealt better working on a plea deal. One has now life without parole. And you know the case I'm talking about, Markel case. Mm -hmm. uh, she was offered immunity and went to trial and had no real shot at winning at trial. And she had immunity twice offered to her. And um, she didn't take and went to trial and lost. She got a life sentence. That is disturbing. As a lawyer, I think I think every lawyer that does this will recognize that haunts you, that if you, because of your inability to convince your client what was in their best interest, or if you did something not in their best interest for your own and they suffered a life sentence, you will that will haunt you as a lawyer for the rest of your career. That was a, a critically bad mistake, but uh, Tim teed us up tomorrow night, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern time, Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern. Tim Jansen will be back with Carl Steinbeck and John Singer, 100 plus reasons, now like 150 reasons why Wendy Adelson should be indicted in the murder of her ex-husband, Dan Markell. We'll be discussing that tomorrow, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Ann Bremner, she is a trial attorney, one of the nation's most recognized legal analysts. She's been in practice over 35 years with a lot of high-profile cases. She was also the prosecuting attorney 
for King County, the Kings County Prosecutor's Office in Seattle. Uh, you've seen her everywhere, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, HLN, and most importantly, STS. A couple of quick comments here. Claudette Foster says, these young men were in their early 20s when this crime was committed. They did it for the parents' money, and they should serve their time, followed by Bonnie Lee Lopez, who's been vocal. They had the best defense. Keep them right where they are, guilty. So you can see the court of public opinion remain split. Uh, Ann Bremner, uh, if you had a guess, legally, how does this play out? Do they uh, get a vacated sentence, a new trial? Do they ultimately get out of prison? Well, I don't think they're going to get it. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Certainly in this case, I mean, I, your viewers and um, here have excellent points that that to this day, people feel that they're that they're guilty. It's a terrible crime. So I think at best they get a new trial or resentencing. But short of that or long of that, nothing else. Or it's simply denied. It's just simply denied. They've been in prison for a long time. And a lot of people say throw away the key. Well put. Uh Tim Jansen, for those of you who don't know him, you're living under a rock if you're watching this show because he's on a lot. He is the famed Tallahassee defense attorney who works for the office that bears his name, Jansen and Davis. He's ha handled all kinds of complex civil, administrative, and criminal litigation. He also spent five years as a federal prosecutor. No one knows the law quite like Tim Jansen, especially when he gets in, uh, in his defense mode and you see him going. Uh, Tim, same question to you. Uh, how does this wind up legally, and do these boys ever see the light of day? And first now, of all, now men. And I want to say it's a pleasure being on with you. You've mm -hmm. had a lot of really important cases throughout your career, high-profile cases. You've done it well. Um, you're a good spokesman, a good legal analyst, and it's a pleasure working with you and being on the show with you. It's such a um, pleasure to be on with you. I'm a great admirer, and thank you. Uh, I think... The best they're going to get, I think, is going to get a commuted sentence. Um, they're not going to be, they're not going to have them walking out of the jail with them saying and having a parade. Uh, I think it's going to be, I think right now that the judge doesn't know what to do. He's, he's hoping that no one does anything. Or maybe they're pressuring the state attorney there to do something. Or maybe Mark is contacting the state attorney, seeing if they will join in on their motion and see if they can work out a resolution. Hopefully Mark is maybe contacting the governor's office with all this and hoping that whoever does the pardons and commutations on behalf of the governor of California will say, listen, can, will he commute the sentence? It'll be good for him. It'll show that he's caring and he, he recognizes that a fair trial was not given. And as heinous as these crimes were, um, they didn't get a fair trial. And everybody deserves a fair trial. You know, no one's above the law, no one's below the law. But I, I don't think there's going to be a new trial. That will never happen. Um, and if he gets a commutation, then a lot of people, 50% of the people, like everything else, are going to be upset that they got out. 50% will be happy that justice was at least fixed. So can't make everybody happy all the time. No one knows that better than the guy that hosts a YouTube show. I got plenty of. Good, good, good email and plenty of bad email. Uh, Al, alpaca Renee, great show, Joel. Always brilliant guest. Who doesn't love an alpaca? Great show, Joel. And then where did this one go? I wanted to bring this one up. Only commenting as I cannot believe I caught a live. Thank God you did, Tenacious P from Manchester, UK. We truly are a global show. Big, huge thanks 
to both Ann Bremner and Tim Jansen. Tim, I'll see you tomorrow night. Tim, by the way, I heard you got a STS hat and some swag. I was gonna wear. I was gonna wear it tomorrow night. I, I didn't want to put it on tonight, but today I'm gonna you wear it tomorrow night. You can't mess up the the hair when you've got hair. No, people wouldn't want to see my hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see you tomorrow night. Uh, I am working, believe it or not, to do a second show today on this missing submersible. Um, it's tough to get people to talk on this, believe it or not, because all the real experts are doing TV 24 hours a day. Uh, they don't realize STS is a bigger, better show, but uh, hope to see you guys back later today. Follow me at Podcast STS, and I will let you know uh, what time that show happens. I think we will make it happen around 7 or 8 p.m. Eastern time tonight on The Missing Submersible. And then tomorrow, Tim Jansen is back on the Dan Markell murder case. Until then, love you, America. Love you, Tallahassee. Love you, Seattle. And everywhere in between. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and... The chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.